with very few exceptions. Our laws, our policies have not been developed with these technologies, with these proposals in mind. Welcome everyone to 100 Climate Conversations. Thank you for joining us. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Uh, we respect their elders past, present and future and recognise their continuous connection to country. This is number 81 of 100 conversations happening every Friday. The series presents 100 visionary Australians that are taking positive action to respond to the most critical issue of our time, climate change. We're recording today live in the Boiler Hall of the Powerhouse Museum. Before it was the home to museum, it was the Ultimo Power Station. Built in 1899, it supplied coal-powered electricity to Sydney's tram system in the 1960s. In the context of this architectural artefact, we shift our focus forward to the innovations of the net zero revolution. I'm Craig Rucastle from docos like War and Waste and Fight for Planet A. Dr. Karen Brent is a researcher and senior lecturer at the Adelaide Law School at the University of Adelaide. Karen researches in the fields of international and environmental law, examining how legal systems can facilitate effective responses to climate change. Her research primarily focuses on the governance of emerging climate intervention technologies. We're so thrilled to have her join us today. Please join me in welcoming Karen. So Karen, in high school, you're on your way to becoming a pilot. Why did you pivot from law and then when did climate change become part of that? It's a funny story. Um, so as part of uh, year 11 and 12, I took aviation studies and I got my private license and uh, my dream was to become a pilot. And this was around about the time that ANSAT had collapsed. So I wasn't sure what a career might look like. And also there's a big jump between getting your private license uh, and then taking those next steps and becoming qualified to fly for Qantas or something like that. And so I thought, okay, I'm gonna need some cash behind me if I ever wanna get there. What will I study? What will I do as an interim career? I'll study law. I'll give that a go. And um, that plan of becoming a pilot ended up getting moved to the back burner because I started studying law and I loved it. Uh, I loved the way that it uh, trains you to think and the different perspective that it gives you on the world. And instead of gravitating towards, you know, tax law, commercial law, I fell in love with international law and also uh, developed interest um, in environmental law. So um, did my undergraduate, uh, started practicing, started practicing with my dad, it was nepotism, <laughs> the best kind. At the same time, started doing some casual research and teaching and realized that that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to do my PhD with a guy called Jeff McGee and uh, Jeff said, hey, look, you're looking for a topic in international environmental law. Have a think about this thing called geoengineering. Tell me, tell me what your thoughts are. Go away, have a read. So I went away, did some reading, and the more I read about it, the more I had pretty big questions <laughs> come to mind. Um, the first was, oh, my God, why? <laughs> why are people suggesting that we intervene in the climate. And then the next questions were, surely our legal systems have something to say about this? Um, are people even allowed to do this under international law, under domestic law? 
what rules are there to make sure something doesn't go wrong. And um, I guess I've been asking those questions ever, ever since. since. Yeah, I mean, it is kind of, it's, it is quite high stakes stuff. So let's actually, mm. let's start with, can you tell us about climate interventions, sometimes called geoengineering? Mm. What is it? What are some of the examples of climate intervention, you know, I guess from the, the smaller end up to the, the end where you were going, Oh no, what is this? <laughs> yeah, um, so climate intervention describes, uh, I guess, two broad categories of proposals to address climate change. The first category is called carbon dioxide removal or CDR for short. And these are proposals to draw carbon directly from carbon dioxide directly from the atmosphere and store it in land or ocean-based sinks to address climate change. So that's one category. I, I like to think of it as cleaning up our mess, yeah. <laughs> that category. The other category is called solar radiation management or solar geoengineering. And these are proposals to reflect a percentage of incoming sunlight or solar radiation energy um, to have a direct cooling effect either at a regional or a global scale. And within those two categories, there are a whole range yeah of proposals and ideas. Yes, okay, and we'll go deeper into those as we get into this, you know, some kind of evil figure holding up a mirror at the, the top of the, the atmosphere. That's the kind of thing I imagine. But is this stuff necessary? I mean, the obvious thing is to say, well, why don't we just stop using fossil fuels? Why don't we just do that instead? Is this kind of climate intervention necessary to maintain temperatures, you know, around 1.52 degrees? So let's start with CDR, carbon dioxide removal first. And is carbon dioxide removal necessary? The science is telling us yes. We have left it too late to just rely on conventional climate change mitigations. Let's stop polluting at source. The science is now suggesting that if we want to uh, meet those Paris Agreement targets, if we want to achieve net zero emissions, then carbon dioxide removal is now a necessary tool to achieve that. Um, no one's saying that it's the only thing we should be doing, by the way. <laughs> They're still saying you need to stop digging up fossil fuels, yes. Oh, 100%, yes. Um, a rapid and significant um, mitigation is necessary. Um, conventional adaptation strategies, also necessary. But this is another essential tool now to achieve those targets. And the question, I guess, is then, not so much is it necessary, we're now seeing it integrated into IPCC, into Governmental Panel on Climate Change uh, Models. Uh, they now include carbon dioxide removal under their definition of mitigation. So in you know, a decade, this has moved as a fringe geoengineering idea to now being part of mainstream climate change science and policy. Um, so that's carbon dioxide removal. SRM, is solar radiation management necessary? That's a different answer to that question. We might, I'll tell you, we'll get <laughs> more deeply into that later. Sure. Are there types of climate intervention technology that are in use in the world already? So if we talk about carbon dioxide removal, yes. Uh, there's nature-based solutions that are being... Tree planting. <laughs> tree planting. So yeah, um, reforestation, afforestation, uh, in our coastal areas, uh, blue carbon, restoring or enhancing coastal ecosystems like mangroves and salt marshes um, to bolster their capacity to draw carbon down and store it in coastal soils and ecosystems. Another really 
cool idea is uh, enhancing the capacity of soils through agriculture and land management practices to um, enhance their capacity to store soil, but also um, with some really um, interesting co-benefits as well, Um, things like improving the quality of the soil by doing that and also things like uh, increasing resilience to drought. So there's some of the um, the nature-based proposals that are already being implemented uh, in Australia and around the world. An example of a solar radiation management technique that's being developed in Australia for regional application is marine cloud brightening on the Great Barrier Reef. It's being developed to help the reef, as a potential way to help the reef um, adapt uh, to climate change and become more resilient in the face of climate change. So this involves uh, spraying minute salt particles uh, from the seawater into low-lying clouds over the ocean to make them whiter brighter, reflect more sunlight, and potentially have a cooling effect on the reef uh, as a means of addressing marine heat waves and the coral bleaching that is threatening the future of the reef. Those proposals are currently being researched and there has been some um, small-scale field testing, but it's nowhere near ready for deployment yet, as far as I know. No, no, you're right. Well, we we spoke to Daniel Harrison as Mm. part of the 100 Climate Conversations, so you can go back and listen to that if you want to know more about marine cloud brightening. I guess before we get into the legal questions around this, we probably do need to set up the kind of bigger style ideas of solar radiation management. What are the kind of more, you know, that kind of marine cloud brightening is quite local, small area. What are some of the kind of bigger, more crazy ideas out there in that area? So I guess the the poster child here is something called stratospheric aerosol injection. Right now. (laughs) So the idea is to mimic the climatic effects of a large-scale volcanic eruption by placing particles into the stratosphere. So we're in the troposphere, which is a layer of the atmosphere uh, with quite a bit of up and downwards movement. The stratosphere is a lot lot smoother And scientists have observed from volcanic eruptions like uh, Pinatubo in 1991 that that spew all this stuff into the stratosphere that uh, these particles can help cool global temperatures. I think Pinatubo, it was something like half a degree for 12 months or more, which is quite significant. So the idea is to mimic that effect by placing particles into the stratosphere using maybe a sulfur-based uh, precursor or something else. At one point, someone said diamond dust. <laughs> so that's one idea. I actually have a student, PhD student at the moment, who's looking at the law and governance of um, space-based proposals. So you said putting mirrors in space. There are ideas um, out there to do that. Fascinating ideas. And, of course, you're not here as a scientist. You're here no, as a lawyer. No. You are here because the question becomes... How do we regulate this? Like, how do we decide as a country, as a society, as a world, as a global system, mm. whether or not this is a good way forward or not? Like, if one country decides we're going to start spewing particles into the air to try and save ourselves from climate change, can other parties, can other countries say no? So I guess let's go back to that. Where are we in terms of having rules in the global system or domestic system even to actually deal with this? I mean... Have the laws even caught up with the fact that this is being discussed? Short answer, not really. We have uh, bodies of international rules and domestic rules. 
uh, that are relevant to both carbon dioxide removal and solar radiation management. But I think the key thing to understand is the majority of these rules were not developed with governing uh, these technologies in mind, with responding to the particular challenges that they present. Um, so at an international level, there has been uh, limited action taken for marine-based proposals, and that's through a little-known treaty called the London Protocol, and it was developed to regulate and prohibit the dumping of waste and other matter at sea to prevent harm to the marine environment, to protect the marine environment. Through that agreement uh, and that treaty body, states have negotiated the first uh, international law rules for uh, intending to govern marine-based carbon dioxide and maybe also some um, marine-based solar radiation management. Um, so it's a bit of a milestone. Um, you don't see those developments happening every day. Mm. But there has not been um, a push by states yet to develop, say, an overarching treaty for solar radiation management. We're not there yet. Not there. So there's no. kind of a couple of things to touch on. I mean, are these, is the, the London Protocol, I'm thinking back to my international law days, is this actually legally binding yet or is it just mm. a kind of protocol initially? Oh, the protocol itself is a legally binding treaty. It's a really good question because as much as these rules have been negotiated, there's a key step in the international lawmaking process where states have to accept or ratify those rules before they become legally binding and enforceable, before they're an operational part of the international legal system. Those rules for marine geoengineering have been negotiated, uh, but only a small handful of states have accepted them. And so they're a long way off becoming legally binding and enforceable. Uh, their scope's also really limited at present. They have the potential to govern a whole suite of marine-based technologies, but the only one specifically listed and regulated at the moment is something called ocean fertilisation. Yeah. Um, so they have potential but are very limited in scope at the moment. And explain how ocean fertilisation works. How is that a, a mitigation approach? So it's a, um, a category of marine-based carbon dioxide removal. Like the name suggests, just when you put poo onto your garden to make things grow, the idea is that there's parts of the world's oceans that uh, could be more productive if you add key nutrients to them, like iron. Mm. So the idea is if put iron, maybe iron filing, something like that, into parts of the world's oceans um, that can stimulate marine productivity. So stimulate algae or phytoplankton bloom. This is the building block mm. of the marine food chain. And through photosynthesis, the algae draws carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And the theory is that marine processes might see some of that stored in the deep ocean and, and removed from the carbon cycle. What are the kind of risks, what are the concerns and the risks we're looking at? Let's start firstly with carbon dioxide removal. Mm -hmm. What are the risks that you're concerned about that you're thinking 
okay, we need to have regulation, we need to have global rules here to deal with this. What are the risks there? Because I'm, yeah. I'm not thinking the United Nations is going to say you can't plant a tree <laughs> in your backyard. Mm. So what are the ones that there are concerns about that might have risks? Okay, so one of the concerns at an international level is ocean fertilisation. Again, this is speaking as a, as a lawyer and not a scientist. <laughs> one of the concerns is that if you create a big phytoplankton bloom and you stimulate that productivity in one area, it might draw or rob nutrients from other areas in the ocean. And if that was big enough, maybe that will not just affect the marine environment of the state, the country that decides to use it, but maybe its neighbours or maybe high seas areas, areas beyond national jurisdiction. These are what we call transboundary effects. Uh, that's one concern uh, with that proposal. But even some of the nature-based, less alarming proposals, ones with potentially great co-benefits, there are challenges associated with them as well. So, um, you know, reforestation and afforestation, there's only so much land available that's suitable to engage in these activities. And so we also have to be mindful of competing land uses. So we need land as well to grow food and to preserve biodiversity. And so that's another challenge for managing those proposals. And um, uh, also a challenge is, okay, if, if you do this, how do you account for the carbon drawdown? How do you make sure that cradle to grave you're delivering a net negative emission and that somewhere in that chain there isn't an activity, transportation, energy input that's actually, um, I guess, um, uh, robbing Peter to pay Paul, yeah. so to speak. So then let's go to solar radiation management then. What are the kind of risks involved there? What are the concerns there that, that are looking to be regulated? Okay. There seems to be potentially more in this case. Yeah, let's talk about stratospheric aerosol injection. These proposals have great promise in the sense that they have the potential to rapidly, in a short time frame, uh, affect temperatures. Um, but uh, there is currently great uncertainty and knowledge gaps around both their actual potential, but also the risks and side effects involved uh, at the different scales they might be deployed. So, for example, one concern, and this is again from scientists observing what happens after large-scale volcanic eruptions, is that, yes, you might have a cooling effect, but it's going to affect different parts of the world differently. One concern is that it might uh, affect regional monsoon and rainfall patterns and maybe cause drought in certain areas. So often when scientists talk about this, they say these technologies could have winners and losers. Some parts of the world might benefit and some might not. <laughs> and what does the IPCC say about solar radiation management? Is there any kind of acknowledgement of it, encouragement of it? It's now, and this is a, a milestone, we're now seeing it uh, considered and the science evaluated in IPCC reports. But unlike carbon dioxide removal where the IPCC says, yep, yep we're, we're integrating this in our models, this is necessary, um, you know, this is a necessary tool, uh, and um, it's now, we, you know, we're lumping it in with mitigation. 
Um, they are not taking that approach to solar radiation management. It is very cautious. There's acknowledgement that, hey, these proposals have potential. They could offset climate change. They should not be the first thing we do. We need to, you know, mitigate. We need to adapt. We need to invest and and maybe develop more CDR. and also acknowledging that the knowledge gaps and that the lack of governance is also exacerb- it exacerbates the risk, it exacerbates the challenges. So very cautious uh, approach being taken by the IPCC, very cautious approach being taken in other reports. There was a report earlier this year by the United Nations Environment Programme that similarly said, hey, there might be some benefits to doing research and we should be researching but no one's advocating for doing this until we know more. And we have robust governance frameworks internationally, uh, but maybe also domestically to uh, govern risk and inform decision-making. And and that's, I guess, where it becomes Mm. fascinating, becomes an international law issue because Mm. international law is all about trying to ensure that one country is not just doing something which is going to disadvantage another. Mm. Is there any kind of international law that kind of, I guess, broad scale that kind of talks to that and that, that kind of informs people on that? So we have some important general rules. One is the obligation not to cause significant transboundary harm to other countries or to common areas like the high seas. It's often referred to in short as the no harm principle or the no harm rule. By way of background, there are a few different ways rules can be made in international law that are legally binding. This rule is not generated by a treaty. It's generated by custom, so consistent state practice and a belief that that practice is required by law. Uh, It's a legally binding rule. It has the same status legally as a rule contained in a treaty. And because it's custom, it applies to every state. Part of the research I did in my PhD, actually my whole PhD, I should say, uh, asked this question of the no harm rule and what is its potential to govern solar radiation management and stratospheric aerosol injection? And what does it have to say about the development, including the research and use of these technologies? It's a general rule. And again, it wasn't developed to deliberately respond to the particular challenges of these technologies. It makes me think, put aside solar radiation management first, my first thought is that why are we not taking like petrochemical states or countries that dig up, you know, coal and burn it, why are they not being taken to the courts to use this very principle by the, you know, the countries like Vanuatu and Fiji and that kind of thing? So this is the thing about international law. There's the international law rules and then the practice. And so we don't have an international police system or even a compulsory court system to adjudicate disputes and enforce international law rules. And so this is one of the limitations that I did come across in my research is that this rule may have a role to play and I think it would certainly be an important rule that might inform future treaty negotiations. And if you look at most modern environmental agreements, you'll see an iteration of the no harm rule in there somewhere. Mm. But in practice, you know, you're relying on states to consent to have a case heard before an international court or tribunal. And also 
the way this rule, what it actually means in practice is a bit unclear. So it only applies to harm that meets the threshold level of significant. And that's not objectively defined either. When does something become significant harm? When does that then trigger obligations under this rule? It's not clear or certain. Are countries talking about solar radiation management? Are they talking about, you know, the stratospheric aerosol injection and whether or not they think it's a good idea and whether or not they should try and ban it? It's early days again, but I think we might see some interesting developments into the future. And that's because um, late last year, an American private company conducted some experiments in Mexico um, without the consent of the Mexican authorities. And um, this has caused a strong reaction from Mexico, understandably, and their government is making moves at a domestic level to ban solar radiation management um, and also uh, maybe advocating for other states to follow suit, whether that will translate into any kind of international agreement or negotiation, um, we will see. But what we are seeing is, um, you know, solar radiation management 10, 15 years ago, it was a taboo topic. Mm. It wasn't talked about. We're now seeing it considered and the research evaluated by the IPCC, mm. by the United Nations um, Environment Program, by leading national bodies uh, and organisations like the US National Academies of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine. And so these bodies aren't just talking about the science they are also talking about the importance of governance uh, and the, that it's concerning that there is this gap. So um, they're certainly flagging this um, for further consideration. These kind of movements might be the starting point of something bigger down the track. And I think it's important to acknowledge, um, we just talked about the limitations of the no harm rule, but that we shouldn't be throwing all our eggs in the one basket with international law. I know I love it, <laughs> mm. but I am the first to acknowledge that it is a slow-moving beast. Mm. Um, so it can take decades for something to go from this stage to a fully formed treaty. A great example, and it's a huge milestone in international law, is the uh, new agreement for biodiversity beyond national jurisdiction. This is a, a huge milestone. But it has been more than a decade in the making. The other reason I would say we shouldn't rely wholly on international law is because international law, by and large, only creates binding rules for states, for countries. It doesn't create rules that directly apply to scientists, to um, universities, to private companies. That has to be done at a national level, regardless of what's in international law or not. It's interesting. I mean, you use the example then of a private company, an American company in Mexico doing experiments without the permission of the government there. I mean, that's kind of a frightening approach if you're just going to have private companies who feel like this is an unregulated space and we can do what we like. When you're talking about something on a scale that could have a huge impact on the earth long term there. I, I think Australia has recently moved to kind of bring in some laws in this kind of space, haven't they? So Australia has... Uh made the first moves towards uh, accepting those rules I mentioned under the London Protocol. They're not going to apply 
to stratospheric aerosol injection. Okay. But they create a um, framework for managing the risks to the marine environment from things like ocean fertilisation. And so recently um, the Australian government has um, proposed a bill uh, to amend a piece of legislation called the Sea Dumping Act uh, to bring it into line with those international law rules. Uh, and this is also a really interesting development because Australia was a key mover and shaker, a key player in developing those rules. So they, they were negotiated and finalised in 2013. So in the lead up to that, Australia played a really key role. And so a decade later, it's important to see them making moves towards ratifying these rules. However, there may be some drawbacks towards implementing those rules as they are. The first is that carbon dioxide removal, we're at a point where as much as the science is saying we need to do this, um, the technology is nowhere near ready to be deployed at the sheer scale that's needed to make a difference. So what this does, it makes research and development really important. The London Protocol rules, uh, they may permit research for ocean fertilisation and if other technologies are added in future, uh, they may permit research, uh, but research that's primarily for financial gain or profit uh, is not allowed. And so as much as it is concerning and, and to think of private companies going out and, and particularly in the solar geoengineering space, but for carbon dioxide removal, it may be really important to have their input and their support for research and development to realise the benefits of these um, technologies. And the other concern I have with that particular set of rules is that at an international level, we're now seeing countries and the London Protocol parties consider adding other technologies to that set of rules, including marine cloud brightening. And I think a key question for Australia is to consider, well, if that happens, what does that mean for the research that's being done for the Great Barrier Reef? It's interesting that so you're talking about a kind of difficult balancing act because on one hand you've got this example of a commercial company coming in and just doing experiments with no permission. But you're saying if you go too far the other way and you say you have legislation that removes essentially the profit motive and removes any ability to make money out of it, you might actually stifle the ability to actually get research into that area. Not necessarily make money but incentivise research. And I think you've touched on a really key challenge here that our legal systems, both at an international and a domestic level, need to grapple with. And that's that no one's proposing carbon dioxide removal or solar radiation management in the abstract. It's being proposed in this bigger context of climate change, the climate crisis, this ticking clock that, you know, we've let tick too long now just to rely on mitigation and adaptation alone. And we need to recognise through our laws through our risk management provisions, through our decision-making frameworks, uh, that yes, these technologies, and some of them certainly more than others, pose significant risks, uncertainties, um, challenges, but there will be consequences now for inaction, for not 
pursuing research, for not providing pathways to responsibly and carefully scale up technologies. You're a founding member of the Australian Forum for Climate Intervention Governance. What are the aims of the forum? Okay, so we're a research group, uh, all with law and governance backgrounds. And uh, the reason we uh, formed uh, this group was because there was a lot of research being done about climate intervention governance at an international level, quite a bit being done uh, in um, Europe from a European perspective and from a North American perspective. And what we wanted to do is um, drive the research agenda in Australia and promote research that considers, well, what's happening here? Our legal system domestically is different from, it's unique from, from Europe and North America. It has, um, you know, particularly our environmental rules. Uh, so what rules in Australia might apply? Where are the gaps? Uh, how do we fill those gaps to address governance challenges? Uh, we wanted to ask these questions with Australian law in mind. And look, we're seeing some, aside from that example earlier of the Sea Dumping Act and the bill that's being put forward, actually seen some really interesting developments governance-wise uh, for the Great Barrier Reef. And so um, in 2020, uh, the uh, Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority produced a policy on interventions for the reef. And so by this, they don't just mean marine cloud brightening and cooling and shading. It includes things like coral translocation and um, crown of thorn starfish control. And um, so it's not with climate intervention or geoengineering in mind. But this policy is really interesting because it's the first I've seen that doesn't just take a myopic focus, an individualistic focus to, hey, you want to do some research, what are the risks? Hey, you want to engage in this, this activity, what are the environmental risks? What do we do about them? This policy acknowledges that broader climate change context and what it means for the reef uh, and that, yep, inaction, not doing research uh, and investigating our different proposals uh, will have its own consequences and that that must be factored into um, and in the background of decision-making. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you obviously you're in a position where you go, we need regulation here. We don't want to mess this up. We don't want to choose the solution to be cane toads and it ends up being a big problem long-term. But on the other hand, you also don't want to kind of prevent change happening. You don't want to prevent a solution that has great potential at a time where we are, as you say, the, the clock is absolutely ticking on solutions here. So that's a difficult kind of line to balance. It is difficult. And part of the challenge, as I've said, is that with very few exceptions, our laws, our policies have not been developed with these technologies, with these proposals in mind. Uh, and so, yeah, the first step is to ask that question, uh, what implications do current rules have? What gaps are there? But yes, the, the, the big challenge, as I see it, for our, our legal systems is how do we create rules and decision-making frameworks that not only assess the risks of individual activities, but have the capacity to weigh that up against the risks of climate change. Uh, and the other thing our laws don't do a particularly great job of is considering the cumulative impacts of different activities. So solar radiation management is an example where this is going to be important because 
uh, you might assess the impacts and risks of an activity happening over here, but what if that activity is happening elsewhere or in other countries? What does that all add up to? How do we assess that? How do we make decisions in light of that? This is something else that another challenge that our legal systems are going to have to grapple with. Let me ask you, so what are the key changes to law and policy that you would like to see in the next decade? I think it's important to start having conversations at an international level about what law and governance might look like. Uh, but in the meantime, we do need to look more closely at our domestic legal systems and what they might do. So with my colleagues, um, Jan McDonald, Jeff McGee, Australian Forum for Climate Intervention Governance, we currently have a project funded by the Australian Research Council where we're asking that question concerning solar radiation management and Australian laws and what might a good governance framework look like in Australia. So I think focusing on domestic law is really important to start with. That's also because that question of scale that you talked about earlier, that maybe really small scale activities and research don't always require big international law rules. It may be that governance at national, subnational level can uh, do the job for the time being and uh, lead into those bigger conversations in future about larger scale experimentation and certainly if there's ever going to be any full-scale deployment. Please thank Karen, ladies and gentlemen. Join me in a round of applause. <laughs> to follow the program online, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To visit 100 Climate Conversations exhibition or join us for a live recording, go to 100climateconversations.com.